Hey, Jay, do you know what the deal with Strike is? Miles, we covered this at Rose City, remember? He's a clone of Cable. No, 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 not Strife. Strike, the acronym. Oh, okay, yeah, that's the Special Tactical Reserve for International Key Emergencies. Initially, it was like the British Shield. And they were replaced by what? RCX? Duck. Where? No, no, Duck. Department of Unknown and Covert Knowledge. Oh, okay. Who are they? They're who? Right, that's what I'm asking. No, that's what I'm trying to tell you. They turned into who? Shouldn't it be whom? What would the M stand for? What? No, who? Weird Happenings Organization. I kind of hate this. No, no, no. Hate is highest anti-terrorism effort. Of course it is. So strike is duck is who? Exactly. Who comes up with this crap? Steve Englehart, I think. All of it? No, just crap. Wait, is there a Marvel organization with the acronym CRAP? Yep, the Committee to Restore America's Principles. It's a thinly veiled allegory for Nixon's creep. Speaking of forced acronyms, right? Hammer is still the worst, though. Well, at least for Marvel. How come? Okay, when Norman Osborn took over the United States during Dark Reign, he wanted to replace S.H.I.E.L.D., but to do so within the general naming conventions, you know, sword, shield, armor. Armor? Altered reality monitoring and operational rescue. It's sort of like the interdimensional sword. And sword does the alien stuff. Right. Sentient World Observation and Response Department. So anyway, Osborne figured he'd call his group Hammer because irony. Does irony mean something too? A situation dramatic twist or turn of phrase that seems deliberately contrary to expectation usually played for humorous result. Uh, Not an acronym, though. No, at least not in Marvel. Well, yet. So what does Hammer stand for? Nothing. You mean it's so forced it's just gibberish? No, I mean it literally doesn't stand for anything. Osborne came up with the acronym and figured he'd work out the rest later, but then he never did. What?! I'm J. Rachel Edditon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 98th and final episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So I know we said final, but don't worry, the show's not going anywhere, we're not going anywhere. But starting with episode 99, the name of the show is going to be changing from that episode out. It is going to be Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. Ideally, we'll be setting everything up to redirect so you won't have to change your feeds or anything. We're still working out the details, and we're actually recording this a few weeks before the change is going to be made. So we'll see what happens, but we'll do our best to keep you guys posted on the website and stuff like that. Ideally, it'll be nice and painless. And if it's not, please let us know and we'll do our best to work out the kinks. Especially in the lead up to number 100, because that is a big one. And we want to make sure that everything is running smoothly. Exactly. So, what's going on this time? Well, we are once again back with Marvel UK. We are looking at the second half of our coverage of Captain Britain in the lead into Excalibur. Again, this is kind of a deviation from our usual structure. Usually, we basically just look at X titles and X specific and X adjacent characters. Captain Britain is an exception because Excalibur, which is an X series, is so, so heavily based in the continuity and chronology established in the initial Captain Britain series. And also, we just really like this stuff, and we want to talk about it, so we're gonna. We do, yeah, and this week is going to be interesting, because last week we did kind of a massive overview and then took a closer look at mostly the Alan Moore run. This week, we're actually going to be looking at the arc that brought Miles and me both into Captain Britain in the first place, and I think the first Captain Britain that either of us read outside of Excalibur. Yeah, uh, my father gave me a trade called Before Excalibur, Captain Britain, and it basically is the stuff immediately following when Alan Moore stopped writing Captain Britain and immediately preceding when Captain Britain shows up in Excalibur in the United States Marvel comics. I don't know about you, Miles, but I came into this absolutely cold. Like, I'd read a bunch of Excalibur, but I had no idea what most of the stuff in it was. This is so built on stuff like the Jasper's Warp, and it was just like being thrown into the super deep end of a pool filled with some kind of hallucinogen and eels. That pool sounds dangerous. They should probably shut it down. Dangerous, but awesome. Uh, Probably true, yeah. The eels are kind of tripping, too. So, like, it's a mutually bewildered experience. Yeah, collective hallucinations. I don't know. It felt a lot like reading The Invisibles, sort of jumping into that mid-series. So I think I'd recently finished reading that when I I read this. So it was a familiar enough feeling that I didn't feel like I was doing it wrong, which maybe I should have. You're not wrong. Like, it's certainly confusing. But when I first got that big old long box full of floppies and trades and just all sorts of X stuff, I didn't really know what order things came in. Like, you know, I knew that issue 199 came before issue 200 and that sort of thing. But like, I didn't know what parts of X Factor were going on during what parts of X-Men and stuff like that. And so when I picked up this Captain Britain trade, you know, yeah, I didn't know about the Jasper's Warp or anything like that. But I just figured, oh, this is just how comics work. You know, you just have to sort of figure stuff out from context and then assume that the characters know what's going on, even if you don't. And so it was fine, but also weird. Yeah, children listening to this show... You have grown up reading comics in a world with things like Wikipedia. 
We did not. We grew up reading comics in a world where you had your friends and they made stuff up a lot because they were kids and they were also kind of confused. Yeah. So, yes. Kids uh, lie, man. However, you, our glorious listeners, have the benefit of having just listened to our last episode, which talks all about the stuff that this episode references. So you're in good shape. And also possibly the Journey into Misery episode, which, again, we linked to last episode. We'll link to again this time with a qualifier that those guys know a lot more about this than we do. We are largely coming into this and talking about it as readers more than as experts, at least in this context. Yeah. Okay, so meanwhile, he said in a not-at-all-British accent, previously on Captain Britain. Brian Braddock was a guy who crashed his motorcycle, was given the Amulet of Right by Merlin, and became a superhero, heralding an era of flying around in red pajamas before being redesigned stylishly by the one and only Alan Davis, also the source of the best smiles and the best hair in Marvel Comics. Also the best hugs, I think. He's up there. There are other really good hugs, though. Okay, well, vying for the championship of best hugs in the Marvel Universe. Definitely the hair and the smiles, though. Now, the stuff that happened after that is what I consider sort of the more modern version of Captain Britain. He ended up on Earth-238, which was a parallel Earth. He met up with a woman named Saturnine, the omniversal magistrix of the cosmos, who was part of the Dimensional Development Court. He met a guy named Mad Jim Jaspers, who was a politician that had created something called the Fury, a big sort of cyborg that killed all the superheroes in the world. Jaspers also turned out to be a phenomenally powerful reality-warping mutant who was determined to remake Earth-238 in his own image. Yes, and Earth-238 actually ended up getting destroyed by the Dimensional Development Court because of that but not before Captain Britain and Saturnine escaped. Captain Britain did not escape. Captain Britain was actually killed by the Fury, and he was resurrected by Roma, who's Merlin's daughter, and Merlin, who had much bigger plans for him because the whole Jaspers thing was about to go down in 616, Captain Britain's home dimension. Yeah, now somebody who knew all about this was Captain UK, who was a woman named Linda McQuillan, the Captain Britain of Earth-238. She had managed to get out and escape the Fury and ended up on Captain Britain's Earth, coincidentally. Brief aside, one of the things we learned during Moore's run is that every universe has a Captain Britain. So we actually see a lot of them when Saturnine is put on trial for potentially having a role in 238 getting all messed up by James Jaspers, which she didn't exactly, Captain Britain is brought there by a group of interdimensional time-traveling mercenaries called the Special Executive who first showed up in a Doctor Who comic. Borrowed from Doctor Who, the Special Executive are also actually the future version of a group called TechNet, whom we'll meet officially today. We also in this arc meet the modern conception of Betsy Braddock, the woman who will later become Psylocke and join the X-Men. In this, she's a telepathic fashion model who works for Strike, the organization from the cold open who's basically the British S.H.I.E.L.D. Also, and more pertinently, Brian Braddock's twin sister. And so the Jaspers warp starts to happen on Earth-616 from Earth-616's version of James Jaspers. Everything goes terribly wrong, and Jaspers and the Fury, who crossed realities to find Captain Britain on Earth-616, both end up dead, and everything's pretty much okay. The Fury kills Jaspers, Captain UK kills the Fury. And Merlin just sort of dies, although we'll find out later that he's faking his own death because he's basically the Charles Xavier of the Omniverse, and that's what he does when he gets worried. So where we're going to open up here is with an England that is still reeling from the effects of the Jasper's War, but has largely forgotten it. It was basically undone when Jasper's died, but the collective sort of tone in Britain is one of creeped out paranoia. We're also coming to a Captain Britain without Alan Moore, who had at this point left the book because of unpaid invoices. And this would kind of be a precursor to Alan Moore's later conflicts with the comics industry, of which he has had quite a few. Now, the anthology Captain Britain was in that Alan Moore had been writing when he quit was Mighty World of Marvel. That would go on for a few issues, written by a few fill-in authors. Eventually, it would be relaunched as Captain Britain, the last title Captain Britain would appear in before Excalibur. Also still an anthology title, right? Yeah, it totally was. I think my favorite story that was in it was called Absalom Doc, Dalek Killer, which was, of course, a Doctor Who story. I realized that it probably wasn't, but for some reason I have it stuck in my head based on the title that that must have been a Western. A Western with Daleks? Well, actually, they're kind That's of... actually very Doctor Who. There probably has been an episode like that, yeah. Now, Captain Britain was, the title that is, was written by a guy named Jamie Delano. He was handpicked by Alan Moore to replace him, and his run is pretty awesome. Toward the end, it's going to be taken over by Alan Davis, who also became the lead writer on Excalibur much later for a really fantastic run. I don't know that much about Delano. I know who's the first Hellblazer writer. That's the main thing he's known for. He's written a ton of comics, but Hellblazer is definitely the most prominent with this run up there as well. Now that we've got that context, let's jump into the story. Like we mentioned, the first few issues we're going to be talking about are still in the mighty world of Marvel anthology, and this is kind of, I guess, an epilogue to the Jasper's Warp storyline more than anything else? Well, to an extent. It's at least the aftermath. The relevant details that you need to know about the Jasper's Warp, beyond the stuff that we just covered, that, um, let's see, almost everyone's forgotten. Betsy Braddock is not in great shape. She was telepathically connected to her lover when he was killed, and that screws you up. 
Emma, who is the Braddock's housekeeper, is still confused because she's basically been held unknowing hostage by a sentient evil computer for the last many years. And Braddock Manor is currently invisible. And I really like that we have sort of this recap as a new writer takes over. And this was especially handy when I was reading this trade paperback with no background knowledge. At least this gave me like something to stand on. We also see in the first story focus on a character who was introduced only very, very briefly in the Alan Moore run, and that is Megan. Yeah, she was there for maybe two panels when she was imprisoned in the internment camps when Jaspers rewrote reality and took over England. We covered her at some length when we covered the Excalibur graphic novel, but I think it might be worth going back and touching on her origin story again just as a refresher. Yeah, so Megan grew up in a Romani community, and she very quickly manifested fur when she was a baby when it got cold. So her parents basically kept her hidden, kept her watching TV all day. Then she went out at night and, you know, flew around because she had bat wings and stuff. Well, there's a reason she had bat wings. And she didn't just manifest fur. People found out she had fur and started speculating as to what else was going on with her, that she was some kind of creature who'd attacked during the full moon, that she must have wings, that she must have, you know, fins for ears, you know, great claws. And with every addition, the baby basically spouted those things. Megan is a metamorph, and she's an empathic metamorph. When she's not paying attention, shifts into whatever the people around her expect her to be. Now, this wasn't the case at this point in continuity at all. We didn't know anything about this. We just knew that she was sort of a strange-looking creature lady. Right. That's going to be established actually later in this story. So we just saw her as this weird, finned, fanged, furry thing. In other words, starting with F. Yes. With F. Um, she could hang out with Fin Fang Foom. She could indeed. She could uh, probably give Fin Fang Foom a run for his money, because once she comes into her power, she is going to be one of the most powerful characters in the Marvel Universe. But we're not quite there yet. So Captain Britain runs into Megan when she is attacking a random dude on the street under the light of the full moon with fangs bared and bat wings, you know, batting. I guess that's what bat wings do. And they fight, and during that conflict, as it moves to a warehouse, a couple kids who Megan had presumably been hanging out with get caught in the crossfire, and one of them gets crushed and killed by a bunch of falling metal pipes. Nice job, Captain Britain. It's unfortunate. Now, we find out after this, when Captain Britain goes with the surviving member of this pair to meet her parents, that she actually knows Megan. Megan was a friend of hers. Megan was a friend of the family's. Captain Britain, when he goes to apologize to these parents for not keeping their child safe, for their son dying well, on his Well, for his very direct role in their son's death, the kid is crushed under girders that Captain Britain knocked down. Captain Britain and Megan together, yeah, when they were fighting. And Megan actually shows up slightly after that, much calmer, still looking the same. And what I like here is how the parents of this kid who died, Mick, are just super compassionate toward both Captain Britain and Megan, talking about how it couldn't be helped and it's no one's fault. It's really kind of sweet and charming and bittersweet to see this. The story's called Tea and Sympathy, and that's a great name for it because that's kind of what we get. And then Captain Britain knocks down the wall of their flat. Well, he does, yes, because a bunch of orange-clad space soldier dudes show up, attack him, and then vanish. And we're going to see a lot of that over the next few issues. It's rough to be Captain Britain. It's maybe rougher to be in Captain Britain's immediate vicinity, though. So another thing we find out here, as Megan is sort of taken in by this family, even though her getting in a fight was what was responsible for their son dying, is that she actually has vague memories of the Jasper's Warp. Which very, very few people do. The overwhelming majority of the British population has completely forgotten that it ever happened. And Captain Britain is shocked and amazed to run into someone who does actually remember any of it. Now, as all this is going on, various walls being knocked down and Megan revealing her memories and parents being incredibly sympathetic given that their kid is now dead, we also see Betsy Braddock and Allison Double, two of the telepaths who survived the various bad events in the Jasper's Warp, coming back to Braddock Manor. Well, and the takeover of Strike, because remember, the reason that Betsy and Allison were with Captain Britain in the first place is that Strike, the organization they worked for, was being taken over by a supervillain named Vixen who had sent assassins after the psychic department. And so at this point, you know, we're getting back to a somewhat normal status quo. I mean, after, <laughs> after things Britain got- normal. But after things got totally uh, blown to hell with the Jasper's Warp, you know, now we have Captain Britain building and rebuilding a supporting cast back at his home. And we're basically ready at this point, as the characters kind of process all the stuff that's happened to them, as Betsy talks about healing her trauma, to start a new title, Captain Britain and a brand new plotline. Now, the run of Captain Britain in the title Daredevils had started with a really good intro, specifically with Merlin and Roma rebuilding Captain Britain from scratch after he'd been killed by the Fury. We start here with Inspector Di Thomas, and he's a detective who really dislikes superheroes. His wife was killed as collateral damage in a superhero fight, 
And in general, he has some concerns about the whole mask thing, and he is making a case to two of his superiors about a recently newly prominent superhero and his possible relation to a recently returned young aristocrat named Brian Braddock. Di Thomas has figured out Captain Britain's real identity. And I really love the evidence he's presenting, because like, he's got these charts, like it's half Captain Britain's face and it's half Brian Braddock's face, and he's got these little lists of you know, things commonalities common. of facial features and things like that, but also stuff like spontaneous use and application of correct grammar. Because yes, if, ladies and gents, that's how you determine whether someone is the same person as someone else. Because if that's not an identifying feature, I don't know what is. I mean, to be fair, there's a lot of other stuff about, like, you know, the structure of his nose and that sort of thing, but the grammar thing is totally my favorite. And so, yeah, as this is going on, the reader gets also a great description of Captain Britain's past from Brian and Betsy sort of reminiscing about it. So they're talking about kind of the mystical superhero aspect of it. Di Thomas is telling his cop buddies about, you know, Brian Braddock's personal life that leads him to believe that Braddock is Captain Britain. And so basically, this is a decent place to start. Now, you still wouldn't know about, you know, the Jasper's Warp and all that stuff, but eh, you could do a lot worse. As we are clearly testament, you can enjoy this run while being completely bewildered by it. We mentioned that very few people remember the Jasper's Warp, but there is a handful of characters who came to Earth as part of it, who are direct byproducts of it. And the first group of those is the Crazy Gang. The Crazy Gang we talked about a little last time, they were created by Mad Jim Jaspers, and they're basically a bunch of people who are kind of Alice in Wonderland slash playing card slash circus based, and also there's the Grim Reaper for some reason. You know, why not? Yeah. They're actually really great in this run. They didn't have much of a personality last time, but what we see this time is that they know they're supposed to be criminals, they know they're supposed to be bad guys, but without a leader, they don't know how to do that. They've been watching TV through people's living room windows and trying to emulate the crooks they see there, but without a lot of key details, they're just completely lost. So they do the only thing that they can think of, which is to run a classified ad for a criminal mastermind to lead them. I feel so bad for the crazy gang. Captain Britain just straight up treats them as villains from the start. But the stuff that happens is so not their fault. Like, Jasper's just gave them this very, very simple directive. You get the impression that if Captain Britain had found them and had been like, we're not going to do crimes anymore. We're going to learn gardening. They would have been like, yes, teach us. I'm just imagining the Red Queen from the crazy gang, like, you know, clipping roses or whatever. Orf with its head, orf with its head. See, she could have been so fulfilled. Yeah, so that plot line is building because they do eventually find a leader. Someone answers their classified ad, and it's a dude dressed like the Caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland. And this is actually going to turn out to be a somewhat older villain and enemy of Captain Britain, who is using the crazy gang to further his own ends. This fine gentleman is Slaymaster. He's going to be a big deal later, and has also been a big deal in the past. So Slaymaster is basically an assassin. He is super skilled. I don't believe he has superpowers on his own. No, he's got a very strong—one of his arms is very strong. Oh. And stuff like that. Is that a superpower, or does he just, like, work out really asymmetrically? I was just thinking he was really dedicated as a teenager, you know? You gotta switch your hands, dude, otherwise it's just not gonna work out later in life. Miles. Yes? Miles. <laughs> what? Miles. Well, anyway, his other defining trait, aside from a mysteriously strong arm on one side... Seriously, if you didn't jump on Harry Palmer, but now you're going after this? Well, Harry Palmer was also a character from another story, so, you know, that wasn't the only context that his name sounds like a masturbation stereotype. <laughs> okay, well, masturbation aside, one of the things that's also interesting about Slaymaster is that he's a Muslim, which you don't see very often, especially in 80s comics. And especially brought up just super casually in passing. Yeah, like he occasionally will reference Allah, and at one point somebody mentions he can't drink alcohol, and like, that's it. And that's surprisingly progressive for a comic from the early to mid-80s. He also has a singularly impressive mustache. Anyway, so Slaymaster basically publicizes the Crazy Gang's actions, hoping to draw Captain Britain out. And Captain Britain, once he hears that the Crazy Gang still exists, is drawn out quite effectively. And does the Captain Britain thing, which is barge in without thinking, and so is easily captured by Slaymaster, who in turn turns Captain Britain over to Vixen. And I like the narration when he's going after the Crazy Gang. How dare they corrupt his world with their madness? Why had they not dissolved with all the other foul creations of the Jasper's Warp? They were an anomaly, which he must eradicate. Because it's important to remember that Captain Britain is super traumatized by the Jasper's Warp. He was killed by the Fury, he saw his world go completely to hell, and this normally really confident dude is still totally shaken. Also, he's kind of a self-righteous asshole, and he really locks down on that when he's feeling insecure. But yeah, like you said, Jay, it's totally a trap. So, Vixen, in addition to basic supervillain, you know, wanting to capture the superhero stuff, is really interested in Captain Britain's costume. Now, Captain Britain used to have a scepter that was sort of the focus of his power. That has been integrated into his fancy, stylish, Alan Davis-designed costume, which amplifies his powers significantly. 
once he is captured by the Vixen and Slaymaster, Vixen scientists start analyzing it. Slaymaster kind of wants it for himself. He doesn't just kind of want it. He assumed that Vixen would give it to him as payment for capturing Captain Britain, and he's really, really pissed off that she hasn't, so he just goes and steals it. He's also pissed off that Captain Britain is just sort of hooked up to a bunch of machines being analyzed. He's like, hey, this is not honorable treatment for an honorable foe. This isn't cool. So, of course, what he does is steal the costume and beat the crap out of the captive Brian Braddock, because I guess that's okay to do to an honorable foe? Well, he starts to. He's trying to get Brian to tell him the secrets of the costume, because while it is amplifying Slaymaster's abilities to a slight extent, it's not really doing as much for him as it did for Brian. And what Brian tells him is, oh, no, no, you got to put the helmet on. The helmet is key. Well, it turns out the helmet is key if you're attuned to the helmet, which Slaymaster is not. And what it lets Brian do is basically use the suit to hijack Slaymaster, get himself out, beat up Slaymaster, and take the costume. It's kind of awesome. And Slaymaster is, of course, humiliated and vows revenge. And for once, we'll kind of actually get it, but not till way mm. later. Well, we're going to talk about that in a bit. Which takes us to the story of Sidney Crumb. This is basically a one-shot story, and it is, I think one of the most powerful stories of this run. A lot of these, or at least the first many of them, are going to deal with the fallout from the aftermath of the Jasper's Warp and the people impacted by it, because while most people have forgotten about it, its effects are still kind of rippling through Britain. And in this case, this is about a guy named Sidney Crumb. Sidney Crumb is a homeless man who's been kicked out of every possible support resource that he had and who has something terribly, terribly wrong with him, something that's sort of growing over his skin and turning him into something else. Yeah, man, this opening narration, I apologize in advance for the grossness of it, but it's just so beautifully, terribly effective. We will have matching gross art up in the visual companion to this episode, by the way, which is worth looking at because it's really, really well done. Itchy skin, inflamed and peeling, moldering scabs, decaying, dribbling. That was how it started. Then bouquets of angry boils swelled tender, red, and ripe. And bilious slime, dimly amber, curdled in jaundiced wounds. You? Rivers of putrid phlegm cascaded from scarlet sores as fractured bone ruptured rotting flesh. Crimson agony soaked into tattered clothing. Sullied body and soiled garment twisted and merged. A swirling mosaic of fused flesh and fabric. That was how it continued. Sidney Crumb is ill. So here's what actually happened to Sidney Crumb. When the Fury ripped through the dimensional wall from Earth-238, it was almost dead, and it immediately found and devoured and sort of assimilated the first life forms it could. In the process, it injured but didn't kill a man named Sidney Crumb, and somehow that wound started to take him over. It's twisted him into this shambling thing whose silhouette vaguely looks like the Fury, which is going to get him in a lot of trouble later, and who can only really react with violence. You know, he sees everything as a threat. He has flashbacks to being abused and bullied as a kid, and basically inadvertently, without really knowing what he's doing, murders a lot of people. You can see the progression here. Like, this is very much a violence begets violence story. But it's also all about privilege and class, because, I mean, he was only in the wrong place at the wrong time to get injured by the Fury because he was homeless. He was only homeless because he was alcoholic. He was only alcoholic because he was abused by his family. And it's just all this stuff that, you know, yeah, he made some bad decisions, certainly, but he just got dealt a super shitty hand. And that's especially a vivid contrast when you look at Brian Braddock. Right, who's got a lot of the same stuff going on, but the added factor of economic privilege and basically being the chosen of the multiverse. I think that's something we're going to see again and again with Captain Britain and Excalibur in that his superpowers come from other places, but that a lot of his power, a lot of his relationships to the people he protects is very, very, very much derived from a byproduct of his class. And so what we see in this issue is Captain Britain hearing about this big monster that looks kind of like the Fury to him, the thing he is most terrified of, most traumatized by. Because it literally killed him. And so he finds this creature and beats the crap out of it. And well, and it's attacking him too. Sidney thinks that he's talking and he's not. He's roaring and yelling. He thinks he's reaching out for help and he's not. He's taking swipes with these clawed hands. And so you see like Sidney's thought bubbles of being, you know, hey, he's a hero. Why isn't he helping me? As he and Captain Britain are locked in this life or death struggle. And dude, it is so depressing. And he finally sort of gets through. He's been trying and trying throughout the fight, but he can't quite talk. You know, he's saying, can't he see I ain't well? What's he doing? Why don't they understand? I'm ill. My mouth ain't right. And Captain Britain just keeps hitting him and keeps hitting him. And Sydney gets more and more desperate. And he finally kind of gets through. 
there's a page where it builds up and builds up and builds up. And just as Captain Britain pretty much has him on the ropes, there's a panel that's just entirely blanked out by Sydney yelling, please stop hurting me, which Captain Britain sort of gets through to, but by which point it's too late to save him. Jay, you were talking earlier today when we were discussing this episode about how like in a post 9-11, post Katrina world, this is kind of a different story. Well, not just this story, the whole post Jasper's Warp stuff, because it's really easy to recontextualize a lot of that. And I can't speak to the intent with which it was originally written, but it's very, very easy to interpret recontextualize it as being about the aftermath of disaster and the people who are left behind and scarred by it as, you know, the nation as a whole around them moves on. Yeah, that's true with Sidney Crumb. It's true to some extent with Captain Britain and the people around him and, you know, Linda McQuillan. And it's very, very much true of the Warpies who we're going to meet pretty soon. Okay, so that Sidney Crumb thing, that was super depressing. So let's talk about what happens next, which is us meeting freaking TechNet. Let me tell you my feelings about TechNet because they are myriad and basically they're just that TechNet is wonderful and I love them forever and I want to read all the comics about them. TechNet overlaps significantly with the special executive whom we met last episode. And we've seen them. They've been on the podcast. They were in the holiday special where we talked about Excalibur. And I believe Elle came up with a pretty good dream casting for them, which we'll link back to in the, as mentioned from this, TechNet at this point is after Captain Britain. Yeah, they're a group of sort of intergalactic time traveling mercenaries, by the way. Yeah, and they are specifically, they are the primary rivals of the special executive, which again is largely a future version of themselves. I love how that works. But TechNet, the big difference is that they're run by a woman named Gatecrasher. Again, and we, we talked love about, Gatecrasher. Yeah, so she's sort of this big, blue, vaguely uh, hippopotamus-looking lady who speaks very properly, but can also totally kick your ass and is utterly ruthless. Captain Britain first meets TechNet when, after the Sydney Crumb fight, he is sort of zapped out of the sky by them, and they introduce themselves. He, of course, is very confused because he's like, wait, you're the special executive. I know you guys, but some of you look different. And they're like, no, 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 we're actually TechNet. That's a different team, sort of, but let's fill you in on why we're here. Now, we're not going to go through the TechNet roster right now because most of these characters actually don't even really have names. They're not very fleshed out. We went through who they eventually will be and what they will eventually do in, again, the holiday special where we talked about them in context of their appearance in Excalibur, the sword is drawn. We'll link back to that in the as mentioned. Um, for now, really Gatecrasher is the one you need to know. The other two who you'd recognize if you'd been following Captain Britain are Fascination, who will eventually be called Scatterbrain, who is a telepath who has the power to basically just massively warp people's perceptions. And Thug, you haven't actually met Thug, but you've met another member of his species. The thug doesn't actually have those superpowers. He just looks similar. Identical, in fact. Uh, Or maybe we're just being speciesist. Hard to say. It's possible. But yeah, so uh, they show up and they head to the mansion. And goddamn, do I love uh, Megan's interactions with Gatecrasher. Megan immediately hates Gatecrasher. And it's just beautifully catty dialogue. You'd better not try to hurt Brian, you you hippopotamus. I hope, child, that hippopotamus is a term of deference. You have definite possibilities. Don't squander them. Stop talking in riddles and tell us who you are. I'm going to go wild and then you'll really see trouble. Oh, say not, my little chicken. Say not. No more conflict, please. Oh, gatecrasher. Yeah, she's like, full of herself is not the right way to put it. She's just so convinced of her own gentility and correctness that she really looks down upon everyone, and it's so good. I always imagine that she rolls R's gratuitously. I think she probably does. We also find out at this point why TechNet is here, which is to say they've been hunting a different version of Captain Britain. They've been hunting Captain, with a K, Briton, B-R-I-T-O-N, from an alternate universe, and they found him on Earth-616. And Captain Briton. I realize this would just be pronounced Captain Britain, but since you can't actually see the text, we're going to do Captain to try to accentuate the phonetic differences. So that captain has made a beeline for stately Braddock matter. This is, I believe, Byron Braddock. Byron Braddock. Byron Braddock, right, because he is from an Earth where everything has gratuitous Ks. Yes, and dashes in the middle. Yeah, so Captain Britain and Captain Britton are beating the hell out of each other. Eventually, Captain Britain wins. And they're like, wait, wait, wait. So are we sure you're really Brian Braddock and not this dude from another dimension? Okay, let's telepathically scan you. Okay, let's look at your genetic signature. I guess you're clear. Nice work. A quick superficial telepathic scan. Yeah, and so Gatecrasher takes the unconscious Captain Britton through a dimensional portal and gets the hell out of there while our Brian Braddock stays behind to hang out at home. If you have already guessed that they have the wrong Captain Britton, congratulations, you are correct. Yeah. Now, two things happen here. One... Our Brian Braddock ends up on Earth-794, which is where this bad guy came from, and two, Byron Braddock, 
pretending to be Brian, just sort of hangs out, is very sweet to everyone, and then proceeds to attempt to rape Betsy Braddock. Yeah. It's super creepy. And And she just straight up kills him. She does. She figures out what's going on. And this actually happens over a number of pages, maybe even over more than one issue. Well, it's interspersed with proper CB's adventures on Earth-794. But she telepathically scans this guy, realizing, wait a minute, something's not right. And she sees these creepy montage panels of all this shit he did. And it's implied there was a lot of slavery and murder and rape and all sorts of terrible, terrible things. And she uses her telepathy to fry him. She kills him. Earth-794, as it turns out, is basically a sci-fi quasi-Nazi dystopia. It is run by Opal Lune Satire 9, who's the equivalent of the Opal Lune Satire 9 that we've already met. The 9 is spelled out at this point. Eventually, it will just be replaced with the digit. She is going to become a running villain in Excalibur. She thinks that our Brian is, in fact, Byron, who is her lover. And she's like, hey, welcome back. You should come to the arena. I've arranged this giant slaughter in your honor for your return. It's going to be great. A bunch of submen are going to bleed in the streets. Isn't this world awesome? But she says it very sharply with a lot of gratuitous hyphens and Ks. And man, it, I really love Satire 9. I mean, I don't love her because she's terrible and she murders a lot she of people. She really is terrible. She is not your friend. But she's just Pralines so... and dick. She's so deliciously evil, you know? In addition to sending those orange armored soldiers earlier, yeah, you mentioned that the Nazi thing and like the way she looks. I mean, it's clear that she's the same person as Saturnine, but her aesthetic is completely different. It's way sharper. She's wearing all black. She has all these like Nazi looking knife sigils around her. Again, it's the sci-fi quasi Nazi dystopia. We're going to see an actual Nazi dystopia, Captain Britain, much, much later in Excalibur. For now, this is what we've got, which honestly, I I think is marginally preferable. Yeah, you know, I'll take Nazi metaphors over actual Nazis any day. She's got great hair, though. She does have great hair. Brian's starting to realize what's going on as Gatecrasher and TechNet head off. They're like, hey, we did our job. And I just want to read this right here because Satire 9 invites TechNet to stick around for the slaughter, to which Gatecrasher replies, I fear, Mastrix, that I must decline your invitation. Whilst my profession sometimes involved carnage that might astound even you, I do not crave it. Your party must jog along without us. Come, children. Trot, trot. Aw. Yeah, Gatecrasher yeah. remains the best. Gatecrasher is so Han Solo sometimes. Yep, she's utterly like, mercenary. She's utterly mercenary. She's very good at coming off like she's, you know, got her shit together. She is absolutely wildly incompetent at her job. She's a complete dork. She's floundering all over the place. More on that later. Well, what I really love is that once Captain Britain realizes what's up and flies the hell away from Satire 9 to Gatecrasher and is like, hey, you got the wrong dude. Get me home. She's like, well... Here's the thing. We're mercenaries. We got paid for this. You going to pay us? So I like how she just completely goes against the person she was just working for to help the person she was hired to bring in, or at least an interdimensional equivalent of it. So yeah, they get the hell out of there while actually killing all of Satire 9's guards that are coming after Brian. Oh yeah, they have a sentient self-replicating slime mold named Pandora that just basically eats everything. And head back to Earth as Satire 9 begs Brian, who she thinks is Byron, not to leave. It's such a weird little interlude. Yeah, man, Saturn 9 is terrible, and she is going to be back. Meanwhile, on Earth 616, things are kind of in a state of chaos back at Stately Braddock Manor. Not only is there a corpse of Captain Britain's other universe counterpart, but a villain from earlier in Captain Britain has returned, and that is Mastermind. Not the Mastermind who was in the Hellfire Club, who's creepy and hit on Jean Grey and triggered the Dark Phoenix saga. This is Mastermind who was the sentient computer that lived under Braddock Manor, because things make so much more sense here. The last time we saw Mastermind, he had been pretty much deactivated by Captain Britain. Captain Britain programmed the evil out of him. No, the last time we saw Mastermind, he had been eaten by the Fury. Oh, right, that too. Which is basically just completely glossed over here. Like, that isn't really revisited that he was allegedly completely gone. But what this Mastermind assures Captain Britain and seems to be telling the truth about is that, in fact, he was only evil due to environmental contamination. He's good now. He's totally here to help. He doesn't want to creep anyone out, so he's going to be a solid light projection that looks like a very, very traditional butler. Who Betsy immediately names Jeeves, because, of course. And he'll totally get rid of the body for them. One thing that's also really interesting is that when Mastermind is describing the contaminant that made him evil, he also lets slip just a little truth nugget about Betsy and Brian's father, who was actually from Otherworld, the mystical fantasy land at the center of all existence that Merlin and Roma come from. Wait, what? Yeah, so he basically says, hey, Captain Britain, Betsy, the reason you guys have special powers is not because you're a mutant, Betsy, exactly, and not because you were just chosen to take the Amulet of Right, Brian, but because I mean, you are also a mutant. Well, that too. But that's on your mother's side. But that your dad was from a different world, one suffused with magic at the center of the cosmos. So they're kind of blown away and baffled by this. 
And again, for now, Masterminder Jeeves is on the good guy's side. Later, he's going to go evil again and try to take over Otherworld, but that's not going to happen for years. Yeah, that's way later. So for now, he is our friendly neighborhood computer butler. And he is here, in fact, to help clean up the bodies and flirt with the housekeeper who he kept brainwashed for multiple years during the period when he had taken over the mansion and was evil. It happens. While Captain Britain is reestablishing his relationship with his friendly home computer, there's another organization that's running around and trying to deal with the aftermath of the Jasper's Warp. That is RCX. RCX is the Resources Control Executive because if it's got an X in it, that's the letter you use for the acronym, obviously, as we experts know. Exactly. And that is run by Agent Michael and Agent Gabriel, who are mod weirdos. They totally are. I think mod weirdos is actually most of the description you need for them. They're very, 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 very invisibles mm-hmm. to me. They like totally they, are. they feel like they belong in that particular universe. And they are responsible for a group of individuals, a group of children called the Warpies. They are children who were born in the immediate aftermath of the Jasper's Warp, who have been effectively warped and altered and mutated by it. They're not mutants in the sense that we talk about when we talk about the X-Men, when we talk about mutation as an expression of the X-Gene. They are an entirely different thing related to the interdimensional energy and stuff that leaked through from Earth-238. They are the responsibility of RCX, who has just called in a photographer for a special project, a perhaps recognizable photographer, because it turns out to be none other than Linda McQuillan. Now, Linda McQuillan was, of course, Captain UK, the Captain Britain of Earth-238 who got out, but she looks a little different these days, specifically, like, before she just had really short hair, kind of short utilitarian hair, and now she's got this kind of, like, beaded mullet back thing. Again, this is part of the therapeutic response to and healing process from future traumatic stress disorder, like Rachel Summers, Linda McQuillan has a therapeutic mullet. (laughs) A therapy mullet. Yeah, you have to get permission to have it in the dorm. Exactly, exactly. Which is understandable because these mullets are serious damn business. Right. Right. So Linda is working as a photographer these days. And as it turns out, RCX has called her in, not for her photography services, but based on her history as Captain UK, as Earth-238's Captain Britain counterpart. They want her to come help them convince Captain Britain to join up and help basically save Britain from the aftermath of the Jasper's Warp. She is reluctant, but she eventually agrees. They head out to Stately Braddock Manor, which is officially back in reality now, nominally under construction, but actually fully there and just becoming less and less invisible. And Jeeves does his best to deter them. Captain Britain says, you know, block them off, don't let them come in. So he just pulls out all of the solid light holograms he can find, you know, dragons and space battles and all sorts of monsters and junk. RCX gives zero fucks and just knocks on the door and are ultimately let in. Yeah, I love this part right here because this whole like unfazed response to utter bizarre weirdness is so typical of actually Alan Davis's own run of Excalibur when he's the one writing it. It's just this cheerful madness. I love it. RCX at this point, we learn, is the new strike effectively. Uh, This is the organization Betsy used to work for. In fact, it's got some overlap with the old strike. Specifically, Agent Gabriel is a guy who Betsy used to know as Matthew before he and his buddies decided to rename themselves after Archangels because they're really committed to doing this dramatic like. You know what this kind of reminds me of? It's like an archer or something where characters have these cover identities that they're going to use for like one mission and they come up with these elaborate backstories and contexts. Or just the gratuitous code names from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah, that too. I love you got to watch more Brooklyn Nine-Nine, man. It is so good. I'll get there. I'll get there. It's delightful. Anyway, RCX is here to get help fixing psychic unrest post-warp. Miles has just pointed out off mic that I should have been saying the RCX because it's like saying, and then FBI shows up and does things. But I disagree. In fact, I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to start just calling the FBI FBI. Oh, what have I done? I don't know. You want to call FBI and complain? (laughs) Now, anyway, the RCX. I hope you're happy now, by the way. Yes. Yes, I am. Okay. The RCX specifically wants Captain Britain to serve as a figurehead for their organization, for reuniting Britain, for a new age of order. They are concerned that the Jasper's Warp will specifically basically be the downfall of the country. They've crunched the numbers. There are parallels to falls of other major empires, and they've got to stop that. And, you know, what better symbol of order than a guy who drinks his way through PTSD? (laughs) Well, to be fair, Captain Britain is extremely well-respected in England. His costume has very, you know, organized lines. That it does. Mm -hmm. There's that. Yeah. No, he is well-respected. Brian is not interested. Brian has really, really had enough of this nonsense, and he's also just kind of generally an upper-class twit and refuses to believe that there's a problem if he can't see it immediately on his doorstep. The RCX, fortunately, has thought of this and has brought the problem to his doorstep in the form of a van full of warpies. 
Now, earlier, Megan and Captain Britain had been getting, you know, closer. They're both kind of outside of the standard day-to-day type of person. They'd been bonding a little under the moonlight when she was flying around doing her were-creature thing. Megan's obviously got a huge crush on Captain Britain, and he goes in to deal with this, leaving her outside, and she senses trapped children. She's reminded of her own early childhood, basically kept in her parents' caravan for fear of what would happen if she'd go out. She's horrified and she lets all the kids out, which is a huge mistake because they're children who have extremely dangerous superpowers and have been being conditioned basically from birth to be fighters. Yeah, and so the Warpies, specifically the Cherubim, who are the superhero-esque group of Warpies that they're, the They're working under the, the people with the Archangel code names because, again, they're really into the theme. Do you get the impression that these guys like got control of a government agency but are just huge nerds and were like, okay. How much more comic book can we make this? Right. It's like how, you know, a lot of uh, sysadmins name their servers after, you know, fantasy concepts or superheroes or whatever. A lot of sysadmins, you say, very impersonally. Well, you know, including me, including me. (laughs) But yeah, so the cherubim just kind of go wild and it's carnage. They're attacking the manor. They're attacking Megan. It's bad news. They're attacking Megan and somehow the stress of this attack causes Megan to change. She had had one previous encounter with Betsy's telepath buddy, Allison, where Allison had said that, you know, she was amazing and beautiful, like an iridescent butterfly. And Megan had basically said, yeah, you're on the drugs. As it turns out, Allison was not wrong. And the stress of the attack, protecting dealing with the cherubim, allows Megan to take on what at this point we will at least believe to be and is very close to her true form. She is a hot blonde who can fly. Yeah, uh, you know, she sort of sees the inner beauty that she has and so manifests it in a sort of stereotypical outer beauty way. And And kills all the cherubim. Yeah, she also manifests some incredible, like, sort of elemental magical powers. And, in fact, she does in this big explosion of ecstatic joy and energy blow up the cherubim who are about to kill everyone. Whoops. During the conflict, Gabriel and Michael decide they're going to get the hell out of Dodge. They, you know, look up and Gabriel comments, Armageddon, to which Michael responds, Yeah, Armageddon out of here. Those nerds. I really love them a lot. Like, I just want the adventures of Michael and Gabriel as a comic. Brian is totally blown away by the hot, normatively beautiful new Megan. And Allison smugly comments that she tried to tell him about this potential, quote, between alien visitations and drunken sulks, which should totally be the title of Brian Braddock's memoir. (laughs) It absolutely should. Alien visitations and drunken sulks, the Brian Braddock story. I want to talk a little bit about this because Brian Braddock, He's our hero. He's certainly been shown as a flawed hero really throughout this entire run. But the way he responds to Megan, how he only paid a little attention to her before they were kind of friends, but whatever. And now he's just sort of doting on her since she is conventionally beautiful. Yeah, it's totally the she's all that makeover, like the taking out glasses, slow motion, shaking out hair, losing fur wings and uh, bad ears. But yeah, he's completely and utterly shallow. And this is something that's actually going to come up in Excalibur. Eventually, Megan is going to call him out on it. Yeah, which I'm really glad gets addressed. You know, Megan calling out Brian Braddock on his shittiness is maybe second in my heart to Scott Summers yelling at Charles Xavier in terms of moments in X-Books that make me happy. Seriously. So in the aftermath of this battle, the RCX is like, all right, so asking Captain Britain didn't work threatening him didn't work and in fact went very poorly what's our plan c i know let's bring in all the other warpies the dozens of monster children that we have in our van to come live in braddock manor because this is what people do with braddock manor they just fucking show up with aliens and live there it's happened like four times so far it really has happened a lot it's true and everyone else is super into the idea betsy and allison think that the warpies are just the cutest kids ever and obviously they should take them in emma the housekeeper is totally down with it jeeves the evil supercomputer butler believes that allying with the RCX is in their best interest, and Brian just can't quite cope. There's a great montage that really should be set to the Benny Hill theme of him trying to get through his morning routine and just stumbling over warpies everywhere. They're being aligned to the bathroom. When he finally gets in, there's one already in the bathtub, etc. Exactly. It's pretty great. So he decides that he needs to get the Dodge out of hell and is looking for the next place to go when he gets a very concerned phone call from his brother, Jamie. Yeah, now we haven't seen Jamie Braddock mentioned in this era of Captain Britain. We've heard that he exists, that Betsy and Brian do in fact have an older brother. Eventually we'll learn that like all British men named Jamie, he's a reality warper. Yes, yes he is. But for now, he's been abducted in a nation called Mbangawi, I'm probably saying that like way wrong, by a dude named Dr. Crocodile. Now, this guy right here is a dude we haven't seen, but we do quickly find out his origin story which was that he actually was a member of the RCX. He had been going around collecting warpies along with Michael 
and Gabriel. Until he got turned into a cyborg crocodile by an exploding baby. Yeah, yeah, they were trying to take a warpy who got agitated and exploded. And when they rebuilt him, he was super messed up looking. Like, he had reptilian skin and a bunch of cybernetic limbs. And now, apparently, is a warlord slash religious leader somewhere in Africa. He is actually going to come back decades later as a fairly significant figure in I believe, Warren Ellis's X-Men run. But for now, he has contacted Captain Britain to say, I've got your brother and I'm going to kill him. You need to come to me right now. Which, of course, Captain Britain, accompanied by Megan, does. And Megan is still getting the feel for her new powers, but she is immediately and very clearly at a level with Captain Britain. She can fly. She's super strong. She can set things on fire with her mind. She can pretty much do anything. Actually, Megan is probably one of the most powerful super beings in the Marvel Universe or will eventually grow to be. and. To a great extent, what we're eventually going to learn is that her powers are basically largely limited by her imagination. Yeah, there's a lot of mystical elemental stuff going on here. They go after Dr. Crocodile, and pretty quickly, Brian is knocked out, um, actually through a phone. It's uh, a phone that triggers knockout gas. Which I guess is a pretty weird way to knock somebody out. It's totally a classic comic book trap. Are you kidding? Uh, yeah, it would be right at home on Batman, the animated series. Exactly. But, but if it were, it would be clearly labeled as knockout gas phone. Yep. But he goes into this big hallucination where he starts to see some of the stuff his brother Jamie has been up to, which is some really not okay stuff. He knew that Jamie was kind of a ne'er-do-well race car driver, rich playboy. It turns out he's also been murdering a lot of people, selling a lot of them into slavery and stuff like that. Like, bad news, really super evil stuff. Jamie Braddock is awful, man. And so when Captain Britain comes out of this in Dr. Crocodile's lair, Crocodile is like, yeah, so we are going to kill this man for what he did, and we brought you here because we thought you had been complicit in his crimes. You haven't. Are you going to fight us now? And Captain Britain basically says, no, he's yours. He deserves to die. Man, Dr. Crocodile is such a good name. It really is. But I gotta say, this is kind of an elaborate plot. Like, if you want to see if someone did horrible crimes, do you really need to drag them across the world and give them knockout gas through a phone to make them hallucinate what their brother did? Your last job was literally for an organization that fucking had access to telepaths, Dr. Crocodile. There are so many ways to do this more easily. So the way I look at it, if your name is Dr. Crocodile, if you give yourself that name, then you probably don't want to do things the simple or boring way. So, you know, live a little. Well, also, this is at least vaguely and tangentially connected to the RCX, let's get Brian out of the way while we take over the house plot, isn't it? Yeah, it is, because uh, Jeeves was actually the one who got in touch with Dr. Crocodile and helped him get a hold of Jamie Braddock, indeed, to get Brian out of the house so he wouldn't interfere with the RCX's plans. And so Captain Britain is just kind of done with all this bullshit. Like, his brother turned out to be really evil and is now probably going to die, which he probably deserves, Brian thinks. His sister is cooperating with an organization that he hates. His house is full of weird monster children, and he says, Megan, screw this, let's just get out of here. Let's get away from all this stuff. What they do specifically is fly to Russia for a really weird one-shot little story involving a character who is called Baba Yaga, but very fucking clearly isn't. I have strong feelings about Baba Yaga authenticity. And a bunch of snake ladies whom they all immolate. No sooner have they spontaneously combusted the fake Baba Yaga and her snake lady friends when they are teleported to 14th century Peru, which Captain Britain manages to recognize from the architecture, the angle of the sun and the air, which seems really far outside of his qualifications. It's like, dude, you're a physicist. You're not supposed to know all of the archaeology history stuff. Maybe it's sort of the other world connection. He gets intuitive flashes occasionally. No, here's my theory. So he's gone through higher education, right? Like he's probably got a doctorate. As we know, in the Marvel Universe, if you have a doctorate, you're a doctor of everything. That's actually kind of a general comics thing, but yeah. So they have been brought here specifically by TechNet to pay off the debt they incurred when Gatecrasher got Captain Britain out of Satire 9's clutches. Here, they discover Gatecrasher in dire streets. She is sitting in a freezing waterfall to keep the large number of parasite eggs she has recently accidentally ingested from hatching. Uh, she was lured out here along with her team after a series of increasingly ridiculous misadventures. She tried to send Satire 9's pay on a werewolf world, which she accidentally arrived on during a full moon. One of their members, Elmo, was killed by the werewolves, and at his wake, there was a bar fight, and they had to pay all the loot from Saturn 9 as blood money, and basically, everything is rough. All of TechNet, except for Fascination and Yap, who's her little lizard creature that calls her mother, have quit. She has gone out to retrieve this perfect crystal mathematical model of a universe from right before an earthquake in the ancient past. That's why she's in the 14th century. Unfortunately, she decided to do this by setting herself up as a god to the Incas who served at a feast what turned out to be eggs full of the parasites, which she's now full of. Not only that, but what she doesn't know is that this was all set up by the special executive 
uh, which is future TechNet trying to poach TechNet's members early. I really love how anytime TechNet has a big caper, it's basically just one of our cold opens. Yes, TechNet is great because every TechNet anything is a massive, bizarre, shaggy dog story. It totally is. So Captain Britain needs to rescue her, stop the special executive, manages to do all this, and she teleports him back to his own time. Man, Gatecrasher. I wish we had more time to focus on Gatecrasher in this episode because she is so entertaining every time she shows up. Yeah, I just never, ever get tired of Gatecrasher. Megan decides on the way out that since the place is about to be destroyed by an earthquake anyway, she's just going to steal a bunch of gold because, you know, no one's going to be using it. I really love that. She's like, is this okay? I mean, I think this is okay, but is this okay? It's not really okay, Megan. No, (laughs) no, it's really, you don't loot other people's cultures. Captain Britain is like, I think you've been hanging out with TechNet too much. But he doesn't tell her to put it back. So anyway, they are teleported back by Gatecrasher to Braddock Manor, which is really not where Brian wants to be since he's still mad at everybody, only to find... A new Captain Britain flying through the sky. And this new Captain Britain is Betsy Braddock wearing a uniform made out of the old one from Captain Britain. And man, I want to segue for a moment and talk about Alan Davis and costume design. Sure. Because he doesn't get called out very much as one of the luminaries of superhero costume design. And I strongly, strongly believe he should. Not only is he responsible for some really amazing, iconic costumes. I mean, I think Megan's classic costume is a really good example of that. Not the one she's got now, the one she'll eventually have in Excalibur, the green one. The modern looks of dozens of characters that are obvious, but very individual variations on that Captain Britain costume. And also just of designing costumes that interact with bodies and fabric and materials in ways that go beyond, I'm going to draw a naked person and then some seam lines. A naked person with no genitals, mind you. Yes. So Betsy's costume is, I think, a really, really prime example of Davis doing what he does very, very well. Totally. So what's been going on, apparently, while Brian's been gone, is that the RCX has said, well, we need a Captain Britain. Linda McQuillan, Captain UK, has said she's done with superheroing. So, hey, Betsy, you've got the same otherworld heritage as your brother. How about you do this? She's initially very reluctant, but they do, in fact, convince her, partially by Captain UK volunteering to help her and be her mentor. And there's this great sort of montage as all this stuff is being revealed of Betsy and Linda just being like a superhero duo and being kind of awesome at it and being the darlings of Britain as the RCX gains more and more political clout. Until Betsy, on her own, goes up against someone who is way, way, way out of her pay grade. That being Slaymaster. Remember how he vowed revenge ages ago when Brian humiliated him? Slaymaster and his mustache. He, in fact, does kick the crap out of Betsy and enucleates her. He rips out her eyes as they're fighting. Now, we have revisited this and covered that specific incident in context of her then transition to the X-Men, which comes very shortly afterwards. But I kind of want to talk about it in context of this story because it really bothered me. It's kind of fridging, isn't it? It's not just kind of fridging. It is straight up fridging. The term fridging refers to a trope referred to as women in refrigerators which originated in a Green Lantern comic when some other supervillain cut up Green Lantern's girlfriend, stuck her in the refrigerator with a note saying, basically, look inside. And Gail Simone, who's now a really well-known comics writer, started a website called Women in Refrigerators, basically keeping track of the female characters, especially female superheroes, who were murdered, depowered, maimed, or effectively otherwise taken just sort of off the table, primarily to provide motivation for male counterparts, because that happens a lot. Although it's not the trope name, or I think the best known example is probably, and actually one that parallels this pretty well, is the shooting of Barbara Gordon in the story The Killing Joke, which is absolutely and unequivocally fridging in its original context, but led to Oracle, who's just an amazing, spectacular character and one of the best reinventions, I think, of superhero comics. So you can subvert it, but it is, I think, really important to look at in context of the patterns that it's part of, especially in a genre that's treated as aspirational in the ways that superhero comics are. I completely agree, yeah. Betsy is being maimed, basically, to teach a lesson to and provide motivation for a male superhero. And indeed, that's what it does, because Captain Britain gets a psychic flash, since Betsy's a telepath, and flies across the country to beat the hell out of Slaymaster before he can kill Betsy, before he can murder his sister. And the other thing is Slaymaster keeps on going on about how she's not a worthy opponent. And it's like, dude, seriously, are you basically going to pick on the functional intern? No, she hasn't been superheroing for a decade. She hasn't been trained on fucking Otherworld. Grow the hell up. It's kind of weird because, I mean, Betsy being blinded does lead to some awesome stories and does lead to her becoming incredibly self-reliant and badass. And yet. Well, yeah, I mean, that's why I specified that I wanted to talk about it in its original and specific context. 
Within Betsy's larger arc, it's an amazing narrative catalyst. Within Captain Britain, within its original published narrative context, it is absolutely and unequivocally fridging. So Captain Britain is back to being Captain Britain. He's done with the sort of honeymoon thing he's been having with Megan in the lighthouse they bought with the Inca gold she stole, which is totally going to be the headquarters of Excalibur for quite a long time. So I was really excited to see it here. Yeah, the first thing that really happens is that Di Thomas, you, you remember that cop from the beginning who figured out he was Brian Braddock, shows up and while still being ornery, asks Guy for Thomas help. did not figure out that he was Brian Braddock. He figured out that Captain Britain was Brian Braddock. <laughs> ah, you and your pronoun vagueness. Um, it's good to be precise about these things because otherwise it sounds completely incoherent. <laughs> that may be true. But anyway, Di Thomas goes and asks Captain Britain for help with this superpowered murderer who's been taking out a bunch of crime lords. I really like Di Thomas. He has good reasons to be suspicious of and mistrust superheroes. But he is willing to, and he's, he's a good cop, he's a good investigator, he's very John Doggett, actually, uh, at least in this context. He's more ornery, but yeah. He becomes more of a jerk later. But in this, he is a really good investigator, he's, you know, worked out who Captain Britain is, and then been hamstrung from doing anything about it. But he's willing to shelve his personal biases to save lives and work for their greater good. So what he tells Brian, he's like, yeah, look, this thing, whatever it is, or this person has been murdering crime lords. I need you to go in and pose as one because you're much less vulnerable than actual crime lords and much less vulnerable than any of my cops, several of whom have already been killed on this so that we can lure this thing out. And Brian's like, I'll take the case and then proceeds to demonstrate that he is absolutely incapable of undercover work. Yeah, he just comes off like a ridiculous movie stereotype gangster. It's funny you should say movie stereotype because the character who comes in to save the day is Megan and specifically the fact that Megan has effectively been raised by television. Megan is an empathic shapeshifter. She's a very good mimic and she's spent her entire childhood watching performances. So they end up going with Di Thomas's plan, but with Megan as the crime boss and with Brian as her sort of Brock Samson looking muscle who doesn't really talk at all. Oh man, sorry. I'm just imagining Brock Sampson as Captain Britain. That would be kind of great and totally different. Weirdly a lot more functional. Very possibly. Brock Sampson is a pretty competent, sane dude. Yeah, I feel like he would sort of fit with the whole weird Marvel UK universe pretty well. Anyway, Di Thomas and Brian bond as they go from crime den to crime den, building a reputation, sharing beers and talking you know, gradually come to terms over their differences. It actually kind of reminds me of when Wolverine and Cyclops share beers in recent X-Men after they have that big fight in S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters, and they're like, we're just exhausted and I know we hate each other, but damn, dude, let's just get drunk. But finally, after enough of these, a vagrant finally confronts Inspector Thomas and says, The Lord blessed me with a child, an angel, my angel of death, silver death. Glittering scythes of sweet release, it is his mission. He chose me and gave me broad shoulders to carry the burden and carry it with pride. Shoulders McGill is proud to do the Lord's work. He's got a silver suitcase, and it is full of a demon knife tentacle-faced thing that doesn't even really have a coherent shape that jumps out and immediately tries to kill them. They manage to fight it off, but the implications that they only kind of touch on in passing are that this thing is a warpy, and it is in fact this guy's kid. Ooh, and the fact that it's just sort of made of bladed cables does imply why there's no mother present. Yeah. Ooh, that's not okay. No. Stupid Jim Jaspers, everything is his fault. Having thus resolved the situation, they part cordially with Inspector Thomas and go their separate ways. Now, that's basically the end of the story, but there are a few little dangling bits that have been addressed throughout these last couple of issues. Let's go through those real quick. Roma has actually found Captain UK. They met up on Darkmoor, which is a significant Captain Britain location. It's where the lab that Captain Britain got its powers from was at. And Roma says, hey, I figured out what's going on. I figured out why the Warpies are here, why the crazy gang is here. It's all your fault. Well, she's very nice about it, but basically what she says is... It's all is, your fault. <laughs> You're from Earth-238, and you still have some of that energy on you. That's what's messing Earth-616 up. Please come with me. I'm going to take you back to Otherworld, because I have an idea. So, the Earth that Satire 9 was from, their Captain Britain is dead, that Captain Britain guy. And the Earth you're from, Earth 238, has been destroyed. So would you like to be the Captain Britain of Earth 794? And what's more, I want to thank you for all you've done, so close your eyes and think of your ex-husband. Your late husband, and specifically his horrible last moments. And Linda remembers that as Rick was dying, he seemed to flicker for almost a moment and then re-resolved and Fury killed him. What it turns out is that flickering was Roma just 
reaching in and grabbing him in that moment out of the past, basically allowing there to be a version of him who stayed alive. So Captain UK is reunited with her husband that she thought was dead. She's going to go be a hero on this terrible, terrible Earth. And he can deal with trademark disputes over his superhero codename later. Yes, whether he's Marvel Man or Miracle Man or Marvel Man. Marvel Man. There we go. Yeah, back at Braddock Manor, Betsy's recovering and taking care of a lot of the Warpies. Jeeves, which is to say Mastermind, is being super nice to Emma because, as he points out, she's actually dying. When she was under Mastermind's control, her brain just got screwed up enough that she's only got about a year left. And he makes a new sort of robot version of his Jeeves persona, who Emma has been gradually falling for. And they go off on a cruise so that she can spend her last days happy. So that's really charming and really sad. Aww. And Gabriel, uh, that is Agent Gabriel from the RCX, formerly a guy named Matthew, has been falling in love himself with Betsy, and they decide to go off to Switzerland to go get married. He also offers her cybernetic eyes, which is how you propose in these circumstances, I guess. I thought that was like an anniversary gift, like the third anniversary is the cybernetic eyes anniversary. We have been doing this all wrong. Oh man, we totally have. Uh, Well, we'll make it our 12th. And yeah, so they get their sort of happy ending there, although the next thing that will happen to her is when she's kidnapped by Mojo in that one X-Men annual, but you know, whatever. Do we ever actually find out what happens to Gabriel? We'll see him later, but I'm not sure that we ever get any resolution on their engagement. Obviously, it never really actually goes anywhere. And the last page is just sort of all of these stories wrapping up, and it's really charming. Like, we see Captain UK and her husband overthrowing Satire 9, bringing down the flag of their empire, looking victorious. We see Gabriel and Psylocke in Switzerland just, like, hanging out and looking happy in the cold. Mastermind and Michael taking care of the Warpies, Jeeves and Emma off on their cruise. And finally... Captain Britain and Megan watching the sunset over tea in their lighthouse with the caption, Never the End. Which is how you can tell that it was written by Ellen Davis and not Chris Claremont, who would have captioned it the beginning. Exactly. So, yeah, that is Captain Britain. That is, in the last two episodes, so many issues of Captain Britain. I don't know how we got through all those, Jay. I'm not entirely sure either. And the thing is, that's not even all of Captain Britain. There is a lot of Captain Britain. But we have covered the relevant stuff because the Red Jammies era, you don't need to know about. So there we go. Well, you might need to know about it. And if you do, you should go listen to the Journey into Misery episode. Yes. But for now, if you've listened to these last couple of episodes, you are totally ready for Excalibur, which we're going to jump into really soon. And I'm super excited. Meanwhile, however, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, I'd like to know what's your opinion about the X-Men movies so far, especially how the characters are portrayed. Who do you think gets the worst deal? So as it happens, episode six, which is called Days of Future Whatever of our show, is all about the X-Men movie franchise and some of the related comics. Now, as for the movies, I like them overall, but I think that's partially because I have a soft spot for what effectively were the first modern superhero movies. I mean, there was like Blade and stuff before the X-Men, but the X-Men movies sort of started it all. And I was also just so excited to see my favorite characters on screen that that counts for a lot, too. Yeah, man, the first X-Men movies came out as I was first starting to read X-Men, and it was such a blast to see them actually on screen. In terms of the movies, I think number two is probably the best. Number one is probably my favorite, not counting the objectively terrible, but endlessly entertaining X-Men Origins Wolverine, which among other things has the distinction of being a high-budget movie written and produced by people who never bothered to look up what Wolverines actually are. Also, Wolverine jumps a motorcycle through a helicopter, so basically it is a delightful and crystalline moment of ridiculous perfection. It's terrible, but I love it so much. (laughs) So much. My favorite is actually Days of Future Past, just because I think it feels most like X-Men, and I am a sucker for all that time travel stuff, even if they did minimize Kitty Pryde's role from the original story. Yeah, I was going to say, speaking of characters who got raw deals, she just got straight up replaced by Wolverine in what was originally a Kitty Pryde story, which is some bullshit. She did, but I think And it's especially some bullshit in an era of the franchise that's been really, really light on good portrayals of female characters. Yeah, well, and speaking of, I think the character who I think got the most raw deal is Storm, simply because her portrayal was nothing like what makes the character so special in the comics. That depth and complexity and regality and passion, we didn't really get any of that in Halle Berry's performance of Storm. Some of that I think you can blame on the actress herself, but a lot of it's just the writing. I mean, Storm was not given the central role that she should have been. There wasn't enough emotional nuance, which I think honestly is something that the early X-Men movies don't do very well with in general. You're not wrong, and I think if we're looking at it objectively, that's probably the answer I would give. Subjectively, I mean, look, my very favorite character got killed entirely pointlessly off screen at the beginning of the third movie, so I have some feelings about that. Entirely reasonable. Oh, and there's Mara McTaggart. Man, Mara McTaggart gets a super raw deal in first class. She really does, yeah. She doesn't even get period-appropriate lingerie. Like, come on. (laughs) All right. On Mars on Mars on Mars asks on Tumblr, that is a weird name, I like it a lot. 
Do mutant couples exclusively give birth to mutant children, or is it possible for a mutant and a mutant to produce a human child? I had thought that Luna qualified, but I realized recently that her mother was an inhuman, not a mutant. It is absolutely possible for two mutants to produce a human child, but based on precedent, that child will probably be a total asshole. Looking at you, Graydon Creed. I mean, to be fair, his parents were both supervillains. That is no excuse. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, they are. He is Mystique and Sabretooth's kid, and he is baseline human. Indeed he is. So, we are an entirely listener-supported project. Some of those tiers of support come with thanks from a range of fictional characters in peculiar situations. I am actually not sure to whom I am turning this over this episode, although I have been assured that it will be sexy. Yeah, so I was trying to do some sexy thanks, and I'm like, wait, who is a sexy character? And I originally wrote some thanks from Satire 9. And then he emailed them to me, and I went, no, no, don't do that ever. It was actually really creepy because she's a terrible person, and there was a lot of murder and torture and stuff in it. So instead, I decided to go with, in my opinion, one of the sexiest characters from the Captain Britain mythos, that being a member of TechNet, Thug. By croaky by gum, no need to stay with Gatecrasher David H. Hadler and Chris Gwynn. We've moved on to the special executive, good sentience. And without the perfect forms and brains of you two, tis a gray and dreary team indeed. Join us, why not, and let the curves of Cobweb, the muscles of Legion, the sensual mysteries of Zeitgeist complement your own, and mayhap the breathless dreams of fascination soon as well. We're a tight bunch, Captains. Share and share alike. Won't you open your mind and come along? Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, soon to be Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, recaps, and much more. Our show is totally listener-supported and ad-free because of it. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, check out the Patreon link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, we'll be taking a trip to beautiful Genosha. As Wolverine and Rogue make a great team, Carol Danvers comes back, sort of, and Inferno Watch continues. Mm-hmm.